Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. There's been a surge of light recognition of the British painter Frank Bowling. His long career began in the early 60s and has traversed a range of styles. You might recognize his cascades of color known as poured paintings and his almost sculptural reliefs. These canvases thickly encrusted with everyday objects from jewelry to plastic toys. And he's probably best known for his matte paintings, which have been described as melting panoramas of color stenciled with faint maps of territories like Africa and South America, as well as his native Guyana, which he left in 1953 at the age of 19 to make a life for himself in London. The story of Bowling's career is in some ways a story of colonialism and the complexities of race and identity. But there are of course other layers to his work, which he continues to make with the help of his family. Frank is 89 and no longer giving interviews, but I spoke with his son Ben Bowling to learn more about his father's work. Ben is an accomplished criminologist who teaches at King's College in London, and recently has begun to help manage his father's studio, becoming a kind of custodian and interpreter of Frank's work and his legacy. I met with Ben back in February of 2023 at Frank's studio in Peacock Yard, just south of Elephant and Castle in London. So here it is, my conversation with Ben Bowling. Yeah, I think that um, working in an artist studio, um, working with museums and galleries. Uh, I'm not a curator, but I work alongside curators. Um, Definitely, the curatorial job definitely has parallels with criminology, because you look at a painting and all kinds of questions arise. Who made it? How did they make it? Who were they? What's underneath the surface? Mm -hmm. What are the layers? What are the materials? So in that sense, yes, the research element of looking at paintings and bringing them to public view and providing interpretation and explanation of them is very much like criminology. I was thinking that too, like every painting, especially every painting by Frank, your father, it really feels like an incident. Something has happened Mm -hmm. and it requires an intense amount of attention and scrutiny and this fancy word, radiocination. Oh gosh, that's a good word. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Detective work. Okay. To unravel what has gone on, what is unfolded on the canvas. And so to me, there's a real excitement in being able to speak to you, a criminologist, um, about your father's work. Um, I also read that you're an honorary psychotherapist. Well, uh, I have to admit that my Wikipedia page needs a bit of updating. So I, in 2010, I started training as a psychotherapist at Birkbeck. Did my three years there and worked at the Gordon Hospital in uh, Westminster, now closed, um, for five years. That involved doing a psychiatric inpatient internship. Um, And I guess there's a... Obviously, there is a specific criminological application in the sense of uh, the whole forensic psychiatry, Mm -hmm. um, working with people who have committed serious, you know, harms, Mm. crimes, let's call them, you know, homicide, you know, sexual violence and so on. 
but just in listening to and understanding okay. patients in a psychiatric outpatient context is a bit investigative. Mm-hmm. You're kind of listening, you know, often 50 minutes just sitting listening, mm-hmm. almost saying nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, listening to what's being said and trying to understand where it comes from and mm-hmm. to make interpretations. So, yeah, there's, um, That's exa- there's a few parallels there. That's exactly it. We're in the realm wholly in the realm of interpretation here in terms of your your vocation or your line of work, your chosen path professionally. And so that's why I feel even more excited about sitting down with you to talk about the paintings around us and your father's career because um, in some ways you're the perfect person <laughs> to have that conversation with. Not to put too much kind of emphasis on it, but um, I mean what I'm reminded of you know, on this subject of investigation or of making sense or interpretation is the fact that in an interview I, I saw with your father, he's sitting down talking to a researcher at the Tate Modern about a particular painting, mm. Mirror, yeah. which was done in 1966. And the researcher, she's out of the frame, but she's asking questions. And at some point, Frank says that you can't really you can't really translate the painting into chat (laughs) yes and i obviously understand that and so it's going to be interesting how we do this yes yes well i've got a couple of thoughts on that first of all just uh sorry to be picky but kind of factual things first of all mirrors at tate britain um the interview is courtney martin who did a um a display of poured paintings at Tate in 2012 and then sat down with Frank in front of Mirror at Tate Britain, where it's now back on the wall, mm. and interviewed him. I don't think you hear any of her questions. She comes in once I, or twice. And you don't see her. Uh-huh. So it was done in a particular way. And it's my one of my most favourite bits of film, bits of interviewing on Frank. She did a, a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also re- reflecting on the relationship between painting and talk, painting and text. Uh, it's, it is a challenge. Obviously, you can describe a work and you can add layers of interpretation of the work as you explain to the viewer how the work was made. And... Yeah, that painting is, I think, open to uh, art historical, uh, painterly kinds of interpretations. But I also think it's open to a kind of psychoanalytic kind of interpretations as well. I wonder if we could, over the next half hour or so, follow a trajectory of your father's development as a painter. If we start, for example, with this particular painting, Mirror, which is a very loaded painting. Symbolically, there are a lot of signifiers in there, whether it's the staircase um, at the the Royal College um, and its meaning in terms of signifying this transitional state your father is in, whether it's his own nudity and exposure, whether it's even this chair, this Eames chair, (laughs) which in that interview, um, he recounts that a partner of his at the time had gone away with Charles Eames, and he was he was upset about it. 
And so he actually went at some point to California to meet with Eames, to see him in his workshop and size him up. And all of that kind of animosity and to some extent reverence ultimately is embodied in this piece of furniture and this painting, which you never would have really known. And there's so many of these objects in this painting. So it's, it's loaded in that sense. It's, yes. it's so um, ripe for interpretation. And if we look at the later works, the current work even, we're in an entirely different realm of abstraction. It's more about physics, the materiality of paint, yeah. of the brushes and what they do to the canvas. There's something much more raw and material about it. Yeah. So I wonder if we could chart this course, you know, from, from a kind of symbolic reading of the work and symbolic work itself into something that's much more abstract. Yes, yes. So I would kind of like to start with Mira and then go back sure. a bit first. So my dad's early work has hardly ever been seen. He arrived in England in 1953 thinking he might be a poet and did his national service in the Royal Air Force where he met um, a number of people, um, particularly um, uh, Critchlow. Um, so this is Keith Critchlow, an architect, among other things, yes. known for his investigation in geometry and sacred geometry. Exactly. Keith Critchlow, um, whose father was a painter, studied at the Royal College of Art and did a cracking portrait of Frank with a a palm tree looking off into the distance. Um, so Keith was a medic. So he met Keith when he got injured. Keith helped him to recover. And on leaving the Royal Air Force, um, demobbed at the same time, Keith uh, took him under his wing and introduced him to art people and cut to the chase, ended up at the Royal College of Art um, in 1959 where he painted with a kind of passion and a fury, really. He drew incessantly. He painted um, from life. So there are many sort of life drawings and paintings. Um, there are a lot of um, solitary figures and bars. He was spending a lot of time yeah. in these kind of spaces on his own. Yeah. I think the, 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 the particularly challenging ones are the, the paintings that deal with childbirth, yes. abortion. He was very preoccupied by um, questions of like race mixing and what the product of a, a union between a black man and a white woman would look like. I had either forgotten or never really appreciated that this, this idea of racial mixing, which at the time, or I guess is referred to as misogyny, yeah. there were laws against it. There were laws against it. Um, so obviously South Africa, it was criminal until uh, Mandela's release, 1990. Um, the USA, the leading case is Loving versus Virginia. And I think that is something like 1964 mm. was the federal, was the Supreme Court decision that brought... Um, an end to the criminal offences of miscegenation. Um, um, 
the loving couple um, were arrested in their bedroom. They went out of state from Virginia to Washington, D.C., got married, came back. The sheriff broke into their bedroom at night, arrested them. The, the judge said not only this is a crime against the state, it's a crime against God, sentenced them to five years in prison and suspended the sentence on the condition that they leave the state forever. And it's a, it's a shocking thing, this is in my lifetime. In Britain, there were no laws against uh, miscegenation, an ugly word, coined actually by, I believe, Confederate propagandists mm. in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, there were no laws against miscegenation in Britain, but it was frowned upon. It was considered improper, and it tied in with public anxiety about migration at the end of empire. You know, the writing was on the wall. Now, when I was born in 1962, uh, Jamaica became independent. Uh, the empire uh, had a singular identity, legal identity. So anybody from anywhere in the empire could move to Britain um, as though they were moving from one part of the country to the other. So there was a lot of public anxiety and physical violence um, and uh, mixed people were kind of demonised. But in Frank's kind of anxiety, you know, there was this idea that, um, you know, mixed children would come out deformed and ugly mm. and so on. Mm. It was also, of course, the time of the thalidomide scandal, mm. where um, women who took, I believe it was an anti-nausea drug, uh, produced children with shortened arms and legs. Um, and so, you know, in my dad's kind of paranoid fantasies, imagine these horrific children appearing into the world. And there are a number of paintings. There are two called Afternoon Nap, which are just, they're, they're Goyer, Goyer-esque, shocking mm. birth mm. scenes mm. where these hideous beasts are appearing um, from the wombs of women. And famously at the Royal College, there was a prompt given to students to do paintings on the subject of birthday. Yes. And some students would paint scenes from children's birthdays. And Frank painted a scene from memory that he'd witnessed of a woman giving birth alone. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deeply shocking paintings. So in the, in the late 50s and early 1960s, he's making figurative paintings, expressionist influenced by Goya, by Bacon, by others, they're, they're challenging, they're dealing with this very difficult subject matter, they are in some ways scenes of horror. Uh, the, the birthday series um, are very graphic, but there are others called the abortion, for example, which have these sort of phantasmagorical creatures emerging and so on. And uh, I think of the period between 1958 to 62, when he graduates from the Royal College, and then 62 to 66, that period, 58 to 66, as one where he is assimilating a wide range of different influences, um, artistically and in terms of thinking about geometry and colour and form. He goes through the paintings uh, of swans, 
mm. the dying swan as a motif, the beggars. He then begins to play with stencil, the stencil of mother's house, and inf heavily influenced by pop. 1966, he arrives at Mirror, of which there were three separate, three different versions. Mm. The only one, the whereabouts of the only one is known, that's in Tate Britain, the other two, we don't know where they are. Mm. Same scale. And I think of Mirror as being the sort of zenith of his artistic ambitions in that first phase of his career. In 66, fed up with Britain, he leaves for New York and then really makes a, a quite a radical shift towards abstraction. And before we go there, you were born in 62. Yeah. So in 66, you were four years old. Yeah. This is the beginnings of your own conscious memory. Where were you? So, um, my dad had three sons. The first is called Richard Sheridan Bowling, and known as Dan. Dan was born January 1962 to Paddy Kitchen. Caused a bit of a scandal because Paddy was um, an administrator at the Royal College of Art, and actually Frank was expelled from the RCA. Went because to the he slayed for a turn. Exactly expelled uh, from the Royal College, went to the slave for a term uh, because of his marriage to Paddy. So Dan was born January 62. I was born November 62 to Claire Spencer. Now, you do the maths. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, Dad had a, a one-month-old baby at the time that I was conceived. And um, he would say it was because of his specific interest in drawing from life and female anatomy. One thing led to another. Mm. I was conceived. Mm. Um, then in 1964, uh, um, my elder brother, uh, sorry, in 1964, my younger brother, Sasha Jason Bowling, was born, who I work with today in the studio, and we work together to support my dad. Um, the three mums were basically single mums, um, although my dad was married to Paddy and also married to Sasha's mum, Irena. Um, he wasn't around that much. So I grew up with my mother in Worcestershire. Um, my mum, when I was a year old, moved out to Worcestershire to teach at Starbridge Art College and to pursue her career as a, as a painter. She was fascinated by the English landscape painters, um, Turner, Constable, Gainsborough and so on. Um, so I have a couple of early memories of seeing my dad in the 60s um, as, a, you know, as a child. But it wasn't until 1979, when I was 16 years old, that I decided that I was going to make contact with him. Okay. Phoned him up. And um, there's a bit of a good story on this. So, so I phoned him up. I'd actually asked a mutual friend through my mum. She was supportive. Asked a mutual friend for his phone number. I could have just looked in the phone book. Phoned him up. And um, phone rang middle of the afternoon, midweek, and there's this sort of sleepy, I suspect slightly hungover voice. Uh, hello. And I said, hello, this is Ben. Uh, hello, Ben who? I said, Ben, your, your son Ben. And he said, oh, hey, babe, what's on your mind? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I just thought I'd, you know, phone you up and, you know, uh, hear how you sound, you know, get to know you. He said, well, what do you think? So that was, our, that was our first conversation, if you like, in my adult life. Wow. And then he said, well, come to London. I'll have lunch. Um, so later, it must have been 
kind of in the autumn of 1979, I came to London on my own. Um, I'd already travelled quite a bit. I'd been to France on my own, busking. Um, so I was quite a confident sort of traveller. Met him on the steps of Tate Britain. Uh, I remember it vividly because uh, I thought I'd better go and look at some art. I went to the, the Big Dali retrospective that year, which was mind-blowing. Walked around the exhibition, uh, at the bottom of the steps was my dad. And we had lunch together, and um, that was the kind of really the probably the beginning of our relationship. Um, I then moved to London in 1985. Um, you know, there was some turmoil in the, you know, getting to know dad and being an adolescent and you know, mm. all those kinds of things. Um, he said that he always wanted to have children, but he didn't ever want to be a father. And the reason for that was that his own father, who was a policeman, was very brutal. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of record that he beat him badly. There's, yeah, some very, very troubling details revealed in his conversations with Mel Gooding for yeah. the, yeah. the Artist Live series at the um, British Library, which I listened to. And I mean, Mel encapsulates these anecdotes in the word sadistic, which uh, it truly did sound. I think I think he I think I think that's right. And also that his father would never speak to him. Actually, never speak to him. That um, whenever um, he was around his father, the children had to be totally silent. I mean, he he thinks he's he feels that he was the favorite child to his mother, and uh, her favoring of him. Uh, set him on a good path, very, you know, internalised good object and so on. But his father was brutal, mm. you know, beat him with the flat of a saw. Yeah, leaving a saw out in the hot sun and then beating him with it. Yeah. And even he, he recounted his mother threatening uh, genuinely to beat him within an inch of his life. Yeah, I think he was beaten a lot. Um, you know, he was, his father stamped on him with his policeman's boot. So the reason why I wanted to, to go back to your father's experience in what was then British Guyana? Yeah. And his experience of, um, I guess, abuse at the hands of his parents and namely his father is that in his conversations with Mel Gooding, it's, it suggested that there is a, a much deeper legacy of violence that led to this experience. And it's the violence of slavery, which at this point was generations removed from Frank's family or the experience of living in British Guyana. But yeah. there is still this kind of carrying through of a history of violence. And I think what's interesting about having this conversation or this part of our conversation is that it seems like Frank would always recoil at any kind of political reading of the work or at some point at least wanted to consciously move away from being understood, first of all, as a black artist. Yeah. Um, so I'm a bit wary about going here now, knowing that um, there's a danger, I think, of pigeonholing, mm -hmm. of putting him and his work into a certain box, which I don't want to do. Yeah. But at the same time, 
there's a fact of his experience that is valid and potentially relevant. I wonder, what do you make of that? Yeah. So I think that... I think a starting point probably is the uh, colonial ideology which inculcated a sense of Britishness across the empire for particular kind of political, cultural, social purposes to maintain order. It's a kind of hegemonic project. Yes, there's the brutality of slavery in the colonial project and the brutality of colonial police forces which are legendary. Um, but there was the hegemonic project of encouraging the idea of British, of Britain. There was the, the idea of Britain as the mother country, of London as the metropolis of empire. So when Frank left British Guyana with a colonial education, which included English literature and a geography focused on Britain and the empire and Europe, he was travelling from the periphery, if you like, to the, to the heart of empire. And he said, I was never an immigrant. He said, like, you wouldn't call somebody who moved from Glasgow or Manchester to London an immigrant. No, I was simply moving from one part of the British Empire to another. Mm. He wanted to be a poet. Um, of course, Guyana wouldn't become independent until 66. He moved to London in 53. So it's a very long period after his arrival. He trained in London. He didn't know anything about art. Technical drawing, yes, and geometry. And he also worked as a cabinet maker in his, in his uncle's workshop. But in terms of the fine arts, he didn't know anything about art. So he learned about art in the British school. Um, so the idea that his paintings would be kind of Caribbean inflected had a sort of sort of blackness about them. He, he, he railed against, he resented it because it was like, why can't I just be British? You know, studying at the Royal College of Art rather than being seen as something other. Um, a key moment was when he was nominated by the British Council to represent Britain in the 1966 uh, first, um, the first festival of Negro art. Yes, the in, World Festival it, of Negro Arts. Yeah, which become, has become the Dakar di Biennale. Mm. Uh, he won the grand prize for painting. And just, to, just for listeners, this is a celebration of Pan-African culture when figures, at least in the 1966 version of the festival, included the likes of Duke Ellington and Josephine Baker. Um, but he really... Or there's a discomfort yes, that discomfort. emerged from this yes. experience. So for many years... His story was that this painting was taken without him really being involved. But I've seen the consignment note and these wonderful press photographs of him with his Chelsea boots. Like, he was no fool. He knew what he was doing. Um, but certainly in the wake of it, he moved from being a British artist to being seen as a black artist in Britain. And he was left out of exhibitions that he had, I think, a right to expect as the silver, silver medal winner from the Royal College of Art. Another story. Mm -hmm. um, Just, yeah, the gold winner was... Was David Hockney. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are a number of sources who say that Frank was slated to get the gold, but because he'd blotted his copybook by marrying the, you know, an administrator from the college, 
And he was told around the same time that Britain is not yet ready for a gifted artist of colour. And I think that this is still, you know, an issue, certainly in my upbringing, you know, in the late 70s, um, it was very hard to be sort of black and English, black and British. There was always the question about, well, where are you really from? Mm -hmm. And if you are really from somewhere else like Guyana, then the question of your Britishness is tentative, contingent, um, negatable. And I think that what he was seeing was that his identity as a British artist in 1966 was being negated and he was being told you can't really be a British artist, you, c you can only be a sort of an honorary member of um, Britishness. Um, so I think that that was why he railed against it. On the other hand, when you look at the paintings, the beggar paintings from the early 1960s that feature Mother's House, um, Bowling's Variety Store, when you look at the map paintings that feature a map of, uh, of Guyana. Mm. And I mean, it's helpful just to signpost for listeners again who might not be familiar with this certain biographical fact that, that uh, Bowling's mother, Frank's mother, was a successful businesswoman, yeah. had this big variety store in um, Guyana, and um, the architecture of it figures prominently in a lot of paintings from a certain period where it's silk screened onto the, to the canvas. Yeah. But sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, some of the really iconic paintings like Cover Girl, My Guyana, Mother's House with Beware of the Dog, features this, you know, the, and, the, and the architecture really kind of, you know, is very, very present, very, very clear in, this, in these stencils. And these are, yeah, if we could almost try and describe these kinds of paintings. Is it op art or pop art? What's the influence? So, um, you know, Frank's never been considered a pop artist, but certainly when you look at the paintings between 1963 and 1966, they've got, you know, certainly some of the kind of pop stuff. Actually, interestingly, one of the first contemporary art exhibitions that he ever went to was called something like um, This is the Future at the Whitechapel. It was the This is Tomorrow exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery. Exactly. Which I think a lot of architect listeners will recognize because um, of the, um, the presence of Allison and Peter Smithson in that show. Okay. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of other, Palazzi was involved as well. Yeah, Anyways, there's a, there's a kind of zeitgeist here. It's absolutely a zeitgeist thing where painting links with architecture, typography, and it becomes part of the, becomes part of the conversation. Right. It's really right in the heart you know, early 60s, if you think about, um, so Pete Blake did the cover of uh, the Beatles' Lonely Hearts Club Band. And if you think about Warhol and Liechtenstein and the kind of the presence of these graphic art meets painting, meets typography, meets cartoons, meets, you know, pop culture. Yeah. It was the first time that he'd seen art in this way, and he said that he never knew this could be art. Mm. Um, I think he must have just come out of the Royal Air Force, might even have been in the Royal Air Force, and there's a link back to his mother because he was on Brick Lane buying um, pins and needles and buying supplies for the shop. I think she really wanted him to be her representative in London 
and then for him to come home and run the store. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a source of great disappointment to her that he never did that. Mm. So, but going back to Mother's House and that particular series of paintings, that I think was, you know, it comes together in Mirror. Mm-hmm. I think there's a kind of, the kind of first zenith of his career is in the production of these works. And then from 66, he abandons them completely. Right? They then it transitions into the map period, mm-hmm. but that whole figurative pop art thing, gone. Yeah. And on, just, the, on the move to New York. And to describe this map period very briefly, there are still silkscreen, there are still stencils and outlines of things, but it's primarily of South America as a figure in the painting, and occasionally Africa as well. So. Interesting you should say that. So the first thing, yes, absolutely. The map paintings start with images of Mother's house, images of her, mm-hmm. of his sons, actually Sasha and Dan in particular, mm. um, stenciled onto the canvas and then washed with different, you know, with, 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 um, with paint. The work is made on the floor of his loft in 535 Broadway in Soho, right in the heart of Soho. Um, and they're huge. Some of these paintings are you know, 21 feet across. They're enormous. Um, Texas Louise, Penumbra, uh, they're, they're, they're extraordinary. Art critics have focused on the map of South America mm. and of Africa. But actually, I think all continents are represented. There's really? Eurasia, huh. Australia. None of the big map paintings include the British Isles, but actually... Uh, in sketchbooks and in an artist's book called Understanding Frank, there's actually the British Isles I've included. Okay. Are they in here? I'm pointing to the, uh, the Frank Bowling book on the ground by Mel Gooding. So the, um, so the maps including Africa, South America, which I think understandably critics focus on uh-huh. because they kind of make the case for Frank's interest in kind of Pan-Africanism yeah, yeah. and in South America. They certainly include many images of Guyana. Mm. But um, yeah, the ones that include uh, Africa certainly included Australia, Eurasia. They're there, but they're not focused upon. Interesting. So they're conveniently left out of a certain narrative of his yeah. work. Yeah, I, which I, I think that's true. It's, it's fascinating to... I guess be brought closer to an understanding of how one's career is constructed externally, which I guess we'll get onto a little more later on in the conversation. Yeah. You know, you are also a caretaker of your father's career at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you are his historian. You are his spokesperson. You are his interpreter. And so this is interesting because I feel like I've been kept away from those paintings. I didn't see the other continents, at least in the material I was looking at in preparation. Yes. It's just a good reminder that there are certain facets of a career that are that remain invisible. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. It's there's a sort of um, archaeology yeah. that's required. Uh-huh. Digging. Yeah. You know, I think that most artists are known for a particular period and for particular paintings within that period. Mm. And artists who live long lives, 60 years or so, um, tend to have entire series, entire bodies of work which are ignored. So the map paintings are Frank's most prominent series, and amongst the most prominent series, it's the ones that feature South America, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which does predominate, it is true. But the ones that feature Australia, and there are 
at least three that I can think of, two enormous 20-footers mm. and one smaller one um, called Travelling with Robert Hughes, who was a, uh, an Australian, features a map of Australia. Mm. Mm. So, in a way, these map signs, these map paintings, they started to be instrumentalized by a certain audience or by critics. They started to frame your father as being a black artist. And you were describing before his reluctance to, to be pigeonholed in that way and how there was, a, especially in the UK, much more pressure to be a black artist. And as a result, this move to New York was in a way escaping that pressure and searching for a kind of liberty or freedom to be, to be a straightforward modern artist or to be part of a much, a much broader circle of influence. And obviously things really changed in that experience in moving to New York, where maybe you could kind of take it from there. He was exposed to um, the likes of um, uh, Rothko, uh, Barnett Newman. These are basically color field painting. Yeah. And I think one of the most instrumental figures, it sounds like, that Frank came across was a critic named Clement Greenberg, mm -hmm. who he's described elsewhere as opening his eyes to the possibility that there was nothing off limits for him as an artist to explore and that um, modernism was as much his territory as it was anybody else's. Yes, I think that's right. So I think that the kind of art he was making in London and the pressures that he was under was to do figurative work which spoke explicitly about politics. And I think when he arrived in New York, that tendency was also there very vividly. The Black Arts Movement, there are, you know, the Soul of a Nation exhibition mm -hmm. illustrated a lot of this, that there was definitely some artists and some critics who were of the view that that was kind of an obligation of a black artist to make art about the black struggle. Bearing in mind that we're talking about the period 66 to 75, which is the kind of cauldron of the civil rights movement, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King, Kennedy, it's, 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 it's a, this, is a, this is a major, major moment. Mm. The museums are being challenged for their failure to represent, well, both women and artists of color, um, and in, you know, for their stereotypical kind of presentation of, of, of black artists. Um, but he did fall in with a group of, of African-American painters, particularly those like um, Mel Edwards, Jack Whitten, um, William T. Williams, who were making abstract paintings and sculpture that weren't preoccupied with race or with politics. So he, it wasn't that he managed to fully escape those pressures, but the possibilities in the USA were much, much broader for him. And I think that he immediately fell in with or fell into the making of these very, very large canvases. Relatively soon after that, by 1972, the map has disappeared completely. And he starts making paintings that are freed from any figurative element at all, using a pouring technique, which he still uses today, where the figurative elements have gone completely, and it's about pure colour. 
Yeah, I think to me this is the most exciting part of his career, this transition from the figurative to the purely abstract. There's a sense of this vicarious liberation as well, that you can experience through kind of witnessing the transition in his work, uh, a similar internal sense of freedom. Uh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. He also engages with psychoanalysis. Really? Do you, have you, do you know the name Harry Stack Sullivan? No, I don't. Yeah, me neither. Uh, Sullivanian therapy. So, I was like, like, I think he was doing like daily. Really? Yeah, Sullivan was, um, was the kind of psychoanalytic psychotherapist to the, to the arts. And was, it was at this moment in his, his yeah, career when he yeah, was yeah. in therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liberation. leave your bits in there if you want to. Yeah, let me just see. So what else you need? I might take this notepad with me. Okay. So we're going now to another studio or? Yes, this is basically a sort of storeroom slash um, sort of works, working space for our registrar. So it's a, just a chance to look at some recently, recently completed work. Okay, so there's um, three very big paintings propped up against the wall. Yeah. So, am I? Am I You're on. I'm on, okay. So, um, uh, this very large piece is called Where Sheep May Safely Graze. And we can't display it in its correct orientation because it's too big. It's uh, two six-foot squares, so it's about 12 feet tall, and we're looking at it side-on. So, um, so, so Dad's uh, approach is to start out on the floor. Um, so a uh, six-foot square of canvas is cut from the roll of Cotton Duck, is the name of the canvas, and uh, the, the, it's lying on the floor, and it's, the edges are supported by stretcher bars. Mm. wooden bar so you end up with like a pool mm -hmm. of about a centimeter or two mm. deep and then he'll begin to uh, wash the canvas first of all uh, he'll take a kettle of uh, boiling water you have to imagine this panel lying on the floor washed with uh, boiling water color and I, I have such a vivid memory of the entire painting, this incredible um, turquoise, aqua, blue, and green. And it's, um, he, he decides that, that he's gonna chuck in all of this, um, this is packing material, and. Okay, it's like little styrofoam chunks. Little styrofoam chunks, bits of uh, notepad, notepaper. Uh, there was, it had been someone's birthday. There are birthday candles in here somewhere. Um, there is uh, some ribbon, some stuff on the edge of the canvas. Um, uh, I think this stuff is like these big thick sheets of, uh, of plastic are the re residues from inside a gel bucket. Mm. 
And I saw another interview you gave where you're describing in more detail the process of the making of the paintings. Mm -hmm. And um, it sounds like often one painting will be dripping on top of another. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there's this like fluid exchange between, literally between different canvases and different paintings. Yes. What I'm also thinking of as I see this is um, how much it reminds me of, do you know the Boyle family? Yes. How I feel in a way like I'm looking at a ground plane. And of course, yes. I mean, a lot of architect listeners will know this group. Um, as examples of a, a hyper-realism, where yes. they've literally extracted a piece of ground and recreated it yeah. um, to be viewed in a gallery environment. Yes. And in a way, what we're seeing here is something kind of equivalent in terms of the, the kinds of detritus that are, that are embedded in the canvas yes. and the materials and the material properties. It's its own kind of explicit realism as well as a deep abstraction um, which I find really exciting. Yeah, I love the Boyle family's work. I remember seeing things like like a street corner, uh -huh. right? Absolutely gorgeous. A kind of faithful re re reconstruction, representation, production. Um, and in a way, okay, so this is abstract painting, and yet it's also um, a, a, a literal piece of the studio floor and it actually in a way becomes part of the studio floor um, it's very thin covering and the the liquid acrylic paint the detritus which is um, a, a kind of wide range of things there are these sort of um, ribbons and birthday candles here's some wrapping paper you can see some text in there mm. there's some raffia covering um, there's uh, this is the string from the very edge of the canvas. Mm -hmm. this, these great sheets of plastic here, they're actually, when the, when the gel that he uses uh, dries out, it kind of creates a skin around the inside of the bucket. So that's the gel bucket has been pulled apart and chucked into the canvas. And in a way, it's, um, it is literally what the studio floor looks like. There's this term modal painting that's come up there was a show that included your father's work in it, along with, um, more, I guess, younger artists as well, who fall into this diffuse category. And when I saw the word modal and when I saw the work, I think about the description of process. Yeah. And there's a certain pleasure in describing the process, the technical process of producing the work. But of course, these are deeply emotional paintings too. And it's always much more difficult or risky to attempt a reading of the painting along those lines. But I'm kind of tempted, <laughs> I'm kind of tempted to ask you, when you look at this painting, what you feel. Mm. Yeah. And you don't have to answer that. No, it's a, no, it's, it's, it, it, it's a really good question. Um, mixed emotions. Mm. Celebration and delight and joy uh, uh, of a long life but also kind of a kind of knowledge that, that, uh, that uh, the painting, life, all these things will have an end. Mm. So one thing which is kind of wonderful and joyous about the experience of you know, working in the studio and having my son, who's now in his 30s, and his son, who's two and a half, come into the studio is that Frank has changed the script 
about fatherhood. Like he has said to me that he always wanted children, but he did not want to be a father because his model for fatherhood was his sadistic, brutal policeman father. And what he's done is by being an absent father through my uh, infancy and childhood, actually moved himself out of that decided, okay, for other motives, but the consequence of it is that I, as a father, have been able to create an entirely new model of fatherhood. Mm. And I think uh, my younger brother, Sasha, probably would, I see the evidence of it in him, like he sometimes called himself mummy daddy because his wife went out to work and he did most of the childcare. I'm a very involved father. It's almost like, we disrupted this old pattern of what a particular father should be, very authoritarian, violent, etc. That was completely disrupted by the choices that Frank made. And now, in my dad's old age, and I think, do think he's actually been a very, very good father to me. He's a fantastic grandfather to his grandchildren. And, uh, and he's a great, great grandfather to his great-grandchild, who also comes into the studio, puts his Wellington boots on, and gets involved, physically trampling over the canvas mm. with um, you know, non-toxic fluorescent paints and has a, has a ball, age two and a half. So I do think that something's happened. There's been a, a changing of the script of what fatherhood looks like. And the fact that you've got these four male bowlings, you've got these four bowlings in the studio, um, uh, kind of coming together I think, is the source of joy. Ben, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed talking about uh, my dad's work with you. It's been a massive pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce this show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Ben Bowling. Special thanks this week to Laura Callender. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.